I'll be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, and then moving over to chapter 9, uh, verses 2 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And skipping over to verse or chapter 9. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and, as, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil and all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Church, good to be with you. Uh, my name is Reed Kappel. I serve as one of the pastors here of the Olathe Campus of Christ Community. And uh, whatever brings you here today and gathering in worship, uh, it is a joy to gather with you. And so I want to take a moment just to pray for our time as we turn to God's word, as we hear from him. And so let us, let us go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you, whether we recognize it or not, as desperate people, as people who have limits, as people who have desires, as people who have questions, as people who have weights and burdens and anxieties of all kinds. And Lord, we also come to you recognizing that you are the God who meets us in every one of our afflictions, that you have come to deliver us from that which plagues us, that which unmakes us. And so, Lord, I ask in this time that, that you would be found to be the God of all comfort to those who are hurting, that you would be the God of all truth who are wrapped up in lies, that you would be the God of deliverance for those who are beat down by shame and sin and guilt, and would you be the God of victory for all of us who recognize that death awaits us all, but there is hope beyond the grave and beyond the sun. And so, Lord, I ask that in this time that by the power of your Spirit, you would awaken us to see beautiful and wonderful things from your Word so that we might know you, walk in your ways, for the good of all people and the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out of the true meaning of its creed that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream today. Full disclosure, I did not write those words. On August 28, 1963, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It was a speech that inspired and still inspires millions of people 
and reverberates in the hearts of countless people around the world today. We, we associate the word dream almost synonymously with Dr. King in many ways. But what's interesting is that fewer people are as familiar with an interview that Dr. King participated in months before his assassination. We like to remember Dr. King as the one who gave the I Have a Dream speech, but it is important for us to pair his hopeful speech with the words that he gave shortly before his death. Dr. King says this, I must confess that the dream that I had that day has in many points turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years. And I would say over the last few months, I've gone through a lot of soul searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that we have many more difficult days ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little bit superficial. And now it must be tempered with a solid realism. And I think that realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go. I share these words as a way to intentionally put forth the stark contrast between the the dynamic hope of I have a dream and the agonizing realism that is found in this interview. Again, we we, we see the the, the lines from I have a dream on t-shirts and posters and coffee mugs. We don't see this interview touted in our culture. The reason I share this is that even the most ardent workers of justice, like Dr. King, can feel as though the work of justice is itself futile, vain, and pointless. That it can feel as though we take three steps forward, but two steps back, or perhaps in some cases, four steps back. And I think we feel that in some ways in the wake of the the mass shooting that took place in Buffalo last week. I'm sure we've heard that in the news, but the shooting that took place that that took 10 lives, all in the name of racism and white supremacy. And so yes, in one sense, I don't want to paint the picture that there's been no progress since civil rights in the time of Dr. King, but I would also echo the words of Dr. King that are still true today. We still have a long way to go, that the work is far from over. Now, obviously, this is specific to the the work of racial justice, but but even when it comes to the work of of economic justice, of criminal justice, of political justice, of, of justice of all kinds, it can feel as though this work never ends and is utterly pointless. Or to put it in the language of Ecclesiastes, why work towards justice when it feels so futile? Why work towards justice when it feels so futile? Now, if you are new to Christ's community uh, or new to the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it's, it's a lot better than what it sounds. I promise you. I promise you. But, but this book, I just want to kind of frame this. This is we're at the tail end of our series in this Old Testament book called Ecclesiastes, and our series is Life Up in Smoke. And, and we've said this every Sunday, but it bears repeating because this book requires some kind of, uh, some reorientation because it's not the same kind of book uh, as other books in the Bible. And so in this book, we have two voices, the narrator who opens and closes the book, and, and the narrator introduces us to Kohelet, uh, which is the word preacher translated in our English Bibles or teacher. And so Kohelet is this old man who's lived a long life, and he has come to tell us, I've experienced everything the world has to offer, and I'm here to tell tales of my journeys. And the conclusion is, it's all pointless. 
And so a very, very hopeful book. Again, we don't really see uh, a lot of words of Ecclesiastes and motivational posters in classrooms. Uh, but, but what Kohelet is telling us is that, look, if life under the sun is all there is, and life under the sun is basically where there is either no God, or if there is a God, he is of no consequence or relevance to us. If life under the sun is all there is, all of life, even the pursuit of justice, is meaningless. Now, the point of the book, actually, I'm revealing the end, I'm spoiling the end for us, the point of Ecclesiastes is to actually point us to the fact that there is hope beyond the sun, that there is life beyond this world, which gives us reason to hope and to have a sense of foundation in pursuing the work of justice of all kinds. But the narrator wants us to first see, through the eyes of Kohelet, how meaningless life is without the justice of God. And that's the first thing I want to to focus in on. Why justice feels futile. Why justice feels futile. So in the mind of Kohelet, the preacher, he sees the work of justice as being futile, pointless, meaningless for two reasons. The first reason has to do with Kohelet's favorite subject, death. Just just a wonderful uh, topic of conversation around the dinner table. But Kohelet basically says death is this equalizer that levels the playing field. And and because death awaits all of us, there's no purpose in pursuing justice. So look with me at Ecclesiastes 9, verses 2 and 3. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. And so what Kohelet is saying is like, look, it doesn't matter if you're righteous or wicked, if you're rich or poor, if you're generous or greedy, if you're conservative or liberal, death awaits us all. It comes to all of us. So what is the point of pursuing justice? We all come to the same ending point. And so according to Kohelet, there's no good reason to even care about injustice or to even care about the work of justice, because, to quote the band Lincoln Park, in the end, it doesn't even matter. What's the point of it all? If we're all awaiting death, justice has no, there's no foundation or hope for pursuing justice. If life under the sun is all there is, then we have no real substantive reason to work for justice or care about injustice. But there's another reason why justice feels futile in the mind of Kohelet, And that's because of this push-pull effect of justice and injustice in our world. It's very very much like the phenomenon of what Kohelet refers to later in chapter 9 in verse 11. Look with me there. So a similar theme here. Again, I saw that that under the sun, so again, under the sun, a world where there's no God or if there is a God, not really relevant. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. So what he's saying here is like, look, you have somebody who does everything right. They follow the rules. They have been good. They have been obedient. They pay their taxes. They tip their waiter. They call their mom on the weekends. Like this, This is a good person. They've done everything right. And yet that still doesn't prevent the outcome of somebody who's done it wrong to receive the reward or victory. Even somebody who doesn't deserve it. It doesn't matter how right you are because the wrong person can come in and receive the benefits and be declared correct when it is categorically not true. 
And we see the same phenomenon in the work of justice and and in the presence of injustice. That with every push for justice in one area, it seems to result sometimes in a pull for injustice in another area. And just just a few examples uh, from history kind of help us see this phenomenon. You think of the injustice of chattel slavery for hundreds of years, black bodies being enslaved that was finally abolished, and thanks be to God for that. But that paved the way for the evils of segregation, of Jim Crow, of redlining, of mass incarceration, effects that still linger in our world today. Or think about war. War is a terrible thing, but yet in some instances it does prevent and has prevented greater evils from continuing. But what do we see after war? We see there are several ramifications, not the least of which is that 50% of veterans are more likely to commit suicide than their peers. And so it's like, yes, we're thankful that that greater evils and injustices were stopped and prevented, but at what cost? Or or you think about even the the great likelihood that Roe versus Wade may be overturned with the the recent draft opinion leak from the Supreme Court. And so yes, I think that's a good thing that that will be overturned, but with it you have the advancement of things like abortion pills that are available for anyone who wants them. Not to mention the potential flooding of more children entering an already overrun foster care system that will continue to cause problems. I mean, Morgan was sharing that with her work today. Because of the lack of sufficient financial and healthcare resources available, we will see vulnerable mothers continue to be a part of our culture. A push for justice leads to a pull of injustice somewhere else. There have been great strides taken to create greater awareness about the remaining vestiges of racism in our culture. But but, But then we have the tragic mass shooting in Buffalo, as we mentioned that was explicitly fueled by hate and white supremacy. And so, so yes, again, we've seen progress, but there's continually ways in which sin, hate, and racism evolves. Or think about last summer. We had thousands and thousands of Afghan refugees evacuated from Afghanistan in an expedited manner. Many of them have come to the United States, hundreds of them in Kansas City. But now, there is no legislative action in Congress to provide a permanent pathway to citizenship for them because they actually aren't technically refugees. They don't have that status. They are parolees. And so their temporary protective status expires in two years. And so, yes, we're glad that they're out of the turmoil of Afghanistan, but now they await a very uncertain, dubious future because there's no pathway to citizenship for them. Or you even think about the good practices, like the good economic community development work of of renewing urban uh, city centers, a good thing that can bring economic flourishing to communities, but with it brings the potential for gentrification, where, where you have the poor that lived in those communities now displaced and forced out because of the increase of housing costs. Again, you see the push for justice in one area leads to the pull of injustice in another area. And so it's not hard to conclude that justice can feel futile in our world. Under the sun, there's no real basis or hope for justice. But again, the very subtle and secretive power of this book, of what God is saying through Kohelet, is that he's actually pointing to the fact that there is life beyond the sun, and that there is a basis and a foundation for pursuing meaningful justice work for the flourishing of others and the glory of God. And thus, there is reason to stand against injustice and to work towards justice. Because as Dr. King once said, which I think is a quote attributed to somebody else, but, but it's that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards what? Justice. 
And so through Kohelet's gloomy conclusions, the narrator is actually telling us that, yes, while, while justice may feel futile, justice is also vital. We see why justice can feel futile, but as we continue, we see why justice is vital. And for this, we have to step back and look at chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes is very repetitive, very cyclical in nature, and so these themes are often repeated. So go back to chapter 4, and we see the foundation of why justice is vital. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Now, again, that sounds really hopeless. Like, this, this is the good part? You know, it's like, but like so what, what Kohel is saying is like, look, if life under the sun is all we have, then the oppressed are by themselves, and they are at the mercy of those who have power. But one of the things we have to, to know about Ecclesiastes is that it is written as meditation literature. And what that means is, is that it is designed to be read in such a way that brings to mind other parts of the biblical story. Ecclesiastes uniquely, many books of the Bible do this, but Ecclesiastes by design is meant to leave us clues and hyperlinks, if you will, to other parts of Scripture. And Ecclesiastes is richly filled with these, this imagery, these allusions and references to other parts of the biblical storyline. So when Kohelet tells us that there is no one standing on the side of the oppressed, the thoughtful reader of Scripture, the Hebrew student who'd be hearing Kohelet's words would be like, well, of course there is. Of course someone is on the side of the oppressed. Because throughout the entire biblical storyline, God declares himself to be the God of the oppressed. He, he declares himself to be the one who identifies with the poor, the orphan, the, the widow, and the immigrant. Time and time again, God tells himself and reveals himself to be the God who is for the vulnerable. And those four categories, the poor, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, those, are, those aren't just like my four favorite things to talk about. Those are, that's referred to as the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. These four people groups are often referred to in Scripture because they are uniquely vulnerable and most likely to be the victims of injustice. And they're the people that God is uniquely sensitive towards. And so this is why the work of justice is vital for the people of God. Why? Because justice flows from the heart of God. And while there are several places we could go to to see this, I want to bring us to one place. So we're going to step out of Ecclesiastes for a minute, which some of you are like, oh, God, thank you, Lord, for that. But we're going to turn to Psalm 89, verse 14. Listen to these words that the psalmist declares. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Now, that's a strong statement. The foundation of God's throne is built upon righteousness and justice. And oftentimes when we hear those words, we kind of hear them as like just synonyms. Like it's just the same, the same idea, just said with two different words. But that's not necessarily true. They are different words. They have a strong connection and relationship, but they are different. And in fact, throughout Scripture, righteousness and justice are often paired together with a very express purpose and intention. I'll explain what that intention is. And, so, so, and I want to do that by explaining what these words are. So the word justice is the English translation of the Hebrew word mishpat. Say that with me. Mishpat. Look at that. Lovely, lovely. Now, when we think of justice, particularly in the West, we tend to think of justice as punitive justice. In other words, justice that is about punishing wrongdoers. And that's true. That's, that, is, that is justice. That's biblical justice. But only 10%, roughly 10% of the references of mishpat in the Bible 
refer to punitive justice. The vast majority of the references of mishpat, of biblical justice, refer to what is called restorative justice. Restorative justice. Or in other words, and, and, and that type of justice is a care for the victims of injustice. It is not just the punishing of wrongdoers and the prevention of wrongdoers doing more wrong. It is that. There's no less than that. But we also see that it is a form of caring for the vulnerable and the victims of injustice. What we see is that biblical justice, mishpat, is about proactively standing on the side of the oppressed, which is what we see referenced in Ecclesiastes 4. It's about proactively responding to the needs of people who will otherwise be vulnerable, marginalized, and exploited. It is a proactive pursuit of the flourishing of the victims of injustice. Now, the word righteousness, on the other hand, is a similar word. So that's the Hebrew word tzedakah. Say that with me. Tzedakah. It's really hard. It's like a T-Z. That's, it's really tricky. It's like, it looks like I just kind of beat my keyboard. That's an actual uh, transliteration of a Hebrew word. Tzedakah, the word righteousness, is similar to justice, but has a very particular nuance. Righteousness is referred to as primary justice. Or, or another way of saying it is pre- preemptive justice. And what that means is that that righteousness describes a life that is lived in such a way that there's never a need for justice. Are you tracking with me? So so justice is the need to restore that which has been broken and, and distorted because of sin and injustice. Righteousness is describing a life that is lived in such a way that if we lived righteously, there would be no need for justice. Or to put it another way, Justice is necessary because righteousness is not customary. That took me a long time to find something that rhymed, but I want to say that again because I was really proud of that line. Justice is necessary because righteousness is not customary. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Think of, and so forgive me for the sports analogy, but, but think of a football game, okay? You've got a football game, and in a football game, you have three groups of people. You have the away team, you have the home team, And then you have the most hated people on planet Earth, the referees, right? You have the referees. Everybody hates the referees, the zebras as they're they're called. And so justice is the work of the referees. Restorative justice is the work of the referees to ensure that the game is played fairly and to ensure that the game is played justly. And when it is not, the referees intervene. But if you're familiar with the rules of football, they don't simply penalize the team that committed the foul. They also provide a counter advantage to the team that had been fouled against. That is restorative justice. And so, so think, of it, think of it this way. When a referee assesses a penalty, they are offering an opportunity for, yes, the wrong, wrongdoing team to be penalized, but also for the team that was wrong to be advantaged. And so, so think of, of pass interference. So when, when a defense commits pass interference, they lose those yards, and those yards are granted, credited to the offense. But in addition to that, the offense is granted a whole new set of downs. And so it's not just the punishing of wrongdoers, it is the ability, the offering, the opportunity for the victims of injustice to flourish. That is mishpat. That is restorative justice. Righteousness, on the other hand, to think of, uh, to use the football analogy still, righteousness would be playing the game as a player in such a way where the referees never throw a flag on the field. That you play the game with such respect and skill and integrity that rules are never broken. 
And so again, because justice is, justice is necessary because righteousness is not customary. And so this is why justice and righteousness go hand in hand. This is why justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne, and this is why we as God's people are called to live and work justly and righteously. But even as I say that, some of you are like, okay, I get that abstractly, I get the kind of concepts here, but what does that look like? Because so often when when there's conversations about justice, especially in our day now, it's so easy to kind of either fall into this polarizing debate about what do you mean by that word, or to fall into this kind of vague description of what justice is. And so what I want to do is give some time to explain what does it look like, and how do we engage in this work as a church? And, and, and a large way in which this is done, I mean, absolutely, justice can and should be executed through the work of our people in their Monday lives, as we saw in Morgan's story. But we also have this beautiful branch of justice work through our outreach partnerships. And if you're not familiar with our outreach partnerships, one, I would encourage you to do so, but to learn more about them and to know how to be involved. And so if you're interested, you can visit our website or you can contact Pastor Nikki if you'd like to learn more about our partnerships. But I want to just give it like an overview of them. And so, so Care Portal, you, that's our newest partner. Care Portal exists to help vulnerable children and families in the foster care system right here in our community. And so when you sign up through our website to be a, a, a helper with Care Portal, um, you receive vetted requests submitted by caseworkers that are approved by Care Portal itself. And these requests range from things like providing beds or diapers or helping pay utilities uh, for foster families or biological families who are trying to keep their children or prevent them from getting into the foster care system. It's a phenomenal organization. And similarly, Safe Families that Morgan is a part of, which again, stop by the welcome table to chat with her about that. But, But connected to Care Portal is actually a phenomenal event called COPE. This is another opportunity that I want to present to us. COPE stands for the Cost of Poverty Experience. It's a simulated learning experience that helps people understand the complexities and the challenges of living in poverty. And and if you have never experienced poverty, if you've never journeyed with somebody who has, you, you are unaware of the compounding costs of being poor. As a person who grow, grew up in that kind of area, like I understand the challenges of growing up poor and the costs of being poor. And so COPE is offering a virtual event on May 26th, and, and we're going to send an email to you all later this week with all of this detailed information, which isn't an excuse to like just check out right now, but, but, but be listening for what is the next step I could take. But May 26th is the next COPE event. Uh, also, through our partnership with Mission Southside, many of you are involved with Mission Southside, and that is so encouraging to hear. But there are opportunities to serve our immigrant neighbors through Mission Southside, to serve the under-resourced in our community. There are one-off opportunities, but there are also more ongoing relational opportunities, like being a language partner for an ESL class. Uh, you can serve with our site team with Jerry Webster at the Reyes community here in Olathe. But you can also help with things like youth events and tutoring and Bible studies. But a great first step, I, I can't like, stress this enough, a great first step, if you want to learn more about the work of Mission Southside, is to participate in a windshield tour. Mission Southside offers these tours where they put people on a bus and drive them around Olathe to show them the communities that they serve in, and more often than not, they are places in our own city that none of us have ever seen, either because we're just oblivious to them or because and sometimes we just ignore them. We kind of avoid those parts of Olathe. And so if we are to be a people of compassion and justice, you have to see those things before your heart can be moved, so to speak. And so Mission Southside is offering a windshield tour for our church on June 20th. 
for 14 people, okay? So I think there's more than 14 people in this room. Uh, So if you're interested, you can sign up. There's a sign up in the lobby. If you aren't able to participate on that date, uh, contact Mission Southside and go on a windshield tour with a family, your community groups, kids in your neighborhood. They would love to journey with you in that. Uh, another opportunity is through our partnership with Youthfront. Uh, many of you know Youthfront as our uh, Christian summer camp ministries, but they also have an incredible branch of their ministry um, in the Argentine district of Kansas City, Kansas. And they have an, an, uh, an opportunity called YF Neighborhood. And YF Neighborhood is an opportunity to engage in meaningful cross-cultural experience with our immigrant neighbors in the Argentine district. And I actually had the joy of getting to participate in this with some of our middle school students. Um, and so, which is a ton of fun. It was very eye-opening. I would encourage you to check that out. If that's an interest to you, check out YouthFront's website to learn more. And, I, and we also mentioned um, the, the hundreds of Afghan refugees who live in Kansas City. And so uh, across our campuses, our five campuses, we're trying to collaborate to help with the resettling efforts here. And so if, you're, if you'd like to learn more about that, to be involved with helping and welcoming our Afghan refugee neighbors, you can go to our website, cckc.church slash cares. Uh, on there, you can find a link to sign up to get more information and find opportunities to serve in things like helping with uh, language classes, uh, but also even in helping with things like uh, getting getting uh, these families to appointments or getting their driver's license, which is actually, they do that through something they call ambassador teams. Uh, Refuge KC is the organization we've been working with, and they encourage people to form teams, ambassador teams of six to eight people, to come together to collectively welcome one Afghan family. And, and the encouragement is just to connect with them, help them navigate what it's like living in in the states, the, the public school system, education, and, and, and how to get like, things like driver's license. And so, again, if you're interested in that, visit our website. Think about how to be involved there. And then the last thing I would say is that I know the school year is coming to an end, but you can be thinking now about being a mentor at Woodland Elementary. There is a training that takes place over the summer, and it's a phenomenal opportunity to invest in our community. To, a great way to invest in our community is to invest in local schools. And so I encourage you to learn to be a mentor. And, and if I may, to that point... Some of you know about the deadly shooting that took place in Olathe at Black Bob Park. And if, you, if you're not aware of that, the news that came out was that those that were involved in the shooting were middle school students in Olathe. And that breaks my heart on so many levels. Because sometimes our tendency is to maybe hear that and just be like, gosh, what is wrong with these kids? What is wrong with their homes? I wanna, I, we, we, we've got to do something. We've gotta, like, like, we, 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 we respond in fear at times. And, and I want to I be very careful when I say this. I'm not saying this in any man, emotionally manipulative way. But I just wonder how much of that could have been avoided and mitigated if these kids had godly mentors in their life, in the early stages of their life. What would have been different? Again, I don't say that to, to guilt you into movement, but to be awakened to the reality, to see our city and our community through the eyes of God. And so I know, church, I know this is this a ton of information, and it may feel like a commercial. I hope you don't hear that. But rather what I'm saying is that I want us, I want us to see this as an opportunity to take a next step. And so you might be like me and feel overwhelmed by this. Like, how on earth could we ever do anything? And, and that's true. We, we cannot do everything. But each and every one of us can do something. And so what I would encourage you when you get this email to think about what is your next step toward justice in these areas. And like I said, I recognize we can't do everything, but every one of us can do something. And, I, and please don't hear this as like this, this guilt-driven plea that like if you really love Jesus, you would do these things. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. But rather, I hope you would hear this as an invitation to see our city, to see our neighbors, 
through the eyes of God, to see biblical justice not as a do-no-harm ethic, it's a very low bar, that, that's the silver rule. You've heard the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So often we settle for the silver rule, don't do unto others in what you don't want them to do unto you. When we live out biblical justice, we cannot settle for a do-no-harm kind of ethic, but rather a proactive pursuit of the flourishing of the vulnerable. And as Jeremiah says in chapter 29, when you seek the flourishing of your city, you find your own flourishing. And so to these opportunities, I hope that we would see not not a guilt-ridden message or, or some sense of obligation to respond, but rather a joyful way to live out the justice and righteousness that was shown to us and secured for us through Christ our King. Some of you knew where I was going. Because I, if, I, if I just stop the sermon there and walk off, yeah, I give you some great opportunities to kind of respond, but if we do not root our efforts to seek justice and righteousness in the justice and righteousness of the gospel of Jesus, then this is to no end. And it truly does feel as though justice is futile. And so yes, we've seen why justice feels futile. We've seen why justice is vital. And lastly, I want to close with this, why justice is possible. I recognize that there's such a great debate in our culture about the word justice. Like, if I would have preached this sermon 10 years ago, I would have gotten up here without any anxiety whatsoever. But this word has been so co-opted. It's been so polarized. So much so that rather rather than actually trying to pursue meaningful justice work, we spend more time just critiquing the ways in which we talk about justice, which is just a deflection from what God is calling us to. And we should have meaningful, thoughtful conversations for sure. But so often we settle for a distraction and a deflection. The problem with us is that we try to search for justice and secure it through means that can lead to greater injustice. That's what's happened so often in our culture, especially when we live as though life under the sun is all there is. And so if we are to meaningfully pursue justice and have meaningful conversations about justice, we not only need justice, But more than that, we need the right justice system, so to speak, and the right judge. Listen to how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Making Sense of God. He says this, we can't work for justice without some acknowledgement of universal moral values. The modern and postmodern disillusion of moral norms has not brought the liberation and peace that we have sought. The idea is that we would become a more flourishing society if we kind of release ourselves from the shackles of an antiquated faith and a belief in some God in the sky. Keller goes on, no, we need universal values, but we also need something that undermines the natural, powerful human inclination to dominate others. And that is so often what happens even in the work and the conversation of justice. This is our perpetual problem under the sun. We all want justice. We all long for it, but we just want it without the judge. We all want the kingdom of Jesus, so to speak, but without the king. We all want wrongs to be righted, but without surrendering to righteousness ourselves. And what we end up getting is an endless cycle of violence and oppression and unforgiveness where oppressor and oppressed just keeps trading places over and over throughout time. In a world where real, meaningful justice work is stalled out by polarizing conversations about justice and where cancel culture is the preferred tool of choice in the justice work across the spectrum, mind you, we need a better tool and we need a better judge. And we need a better gospel. Because the only way we can find hope for justice in this world under the sun is to surrender to the Son of God who himself surrendered himself to him who judges justly. 
The Apostle Peter declares these words in chapter 2 of his letter. For to this you have been called. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a recipient of justice and righteousness, you have been called to this. I have been called to this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen? We need not copy Kohelet and resign ourselves to the conclusion that injustice is just part of our world. Because there is a judge beyond the sun. That is the hope that we see being previewed for us in Ecclesiastes. There is a judge beyond the sun who will execute justice for the oppressed. But even more than that, there is a redeemer beyond the sun who has come to be oppressed for us, to deliver us from every oppression, every form of death, every form of evil and injustice that seeks to destroy us. Listen again to how Keller says this. It is only in Jesus that we see how radically and literally God identified with the poor and oppressed. He was born to a poor family. He lived among the marginalized and outcast. His trial was a miscarriage of justice. He died violently, naked and penniless. And so the Son of God himself knew what it was like to be a victim of injustice, to stand up to a corrupt system, and to be killed by it. If this is not the foundation of our hope, then we will either seek the work of justice in a way to try to conquer our enemies, or we will fall into despair. Church, because our faith is centered around a just king who displayed his power by humbling himself and dying for his enemies, we are able to bring hope for justice to our world with compassion and without condemnation. With compassion and without condemnation. Because Jesus is our judge and king, we know that justice is not futile. We know that justice is vital. And thanks be to God, we know that justice is possible. Amen? For the judge of the universe stepped down from his bench to become the victim of all sin, of all injustice, of all oppression, in order to set the world to rights once and for all. It is the gospel of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, where he is king now and forever, that secures our righteousness and justice before him, so that we might live out that righteousness and justice for him and for the good of all people. And so because there is hope for justice under the sun, we can seek justice knowing that it has been secured for us in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you are a God who stands on the side of the oppressed. Because if you, if you didn't, we would stand alone, each and every one of us. For we are oppressed by our sin, we are oppressed by death, we are oppressed by shame of all kinds. And so, Lord, would the power of your ability to identify with our brokenness and oppression to the point of becoming our sin, our oppression, our evil, would that transform the way in which we see all people and live our lives, that you have called us into a life of righteousness and justice, not to be simply the recipients of it, but to be ambassadors of it in this world. And so, Lord, I ask that in this time, by the power of your Spirit, you would widen the scope of what it means that you have granted us and declared us righteous and just before you so that we might live lives of righteousness and justice for you, for the good of all people. Lord, may the gospel be our animating power and our push to pursue justice in this world. We long for your kingdom to come. We feel the brokenness in the world and in us. 
But until then, come Lord Jesus and equip us to be your church for the glory of your name and the good of all peoples. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.